Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 42, A Swineherd Takes No Prisoners. First, as always, big thanks to our new Patreon supporters. This week, it is Ignacio or Nacho Bartholomew. So, big thanks to Ignacio. Thanks also for meeting me for drinks the other day. It was great meeting you. See you soon. And, yeah, thanks for supporting the show. For everyone else, hey, getting your support us. And I'm also kind of ahead of schedule and everything this week. So, my goal is this Saturday to spend at least a couple hours finally getting started on that History of Volga Bulgaria special mini series episode. I have to look in to see how much content there is. But if you want to hear about the history of Volga Bulgaria, a completely different state way up in what's now Russia around the modern city of Kazan, you want to check that out? Well, become a Patreon supporter. You'll get it. So, yeah, that's about it there. Now, we left off last time with Bulgaria in an intensely weakened state. Its only ally was the one successor state of the Tatar Golden Horde, and not the one that's closest to them. Byzantium was an ally until recently, but the decision by its emperor Michael not to give two Black Sea cities promised to Bulgarian Tsar Constantine Tich resulted in renewed hostilities in 1270. But I never answered quite why the Byzantine emperor declined to give up those cities. It's most likely because in the years since the agreement was set up, he had concluded marriage alliances with Hungary and Nogai, the kind of great-great-grandson of Genghis Khan and the main leader of what remained of the Golden Horde. With these alliances, Michael could say that well, basically, yeah, he could say and do what he liked to Bulgaria, secure that he had Bulgaria very much surrounded by the Hungarians and the Tatars. So, you know, initially, Michael made this kind of sacrifice so he could get Bulgaria on its his side. But by the time it came necessary to actually go through the deal, it's like, eh, it's not really, no, doesn't really work out for me anymore. Sorry. And that didn't stop Constantine from replying. His reply was, of course, to launch an invasion of Byzantine Thrace in 1271. In response, Michael had that Tatar ally Nogai invade Bulgaria from the north and just absolutely ravage the country. As I mentioned last time, Bulgaria was still paying tribute to another portion of the Golden Horde, uh, which could have in theory protected it. But that portion of the Golden Horde, which was really much farther east. So remember the Golden Horde split up, uh, the two kind of larger sections of it, you've got the one that borders Bulgaria, and that's uh, down closer, and you've got the one that's much farther away. The one that's farther away gets uh, tribute from Bulgaria, but it's too far away to really influence or help or anything, and the one closer is a Byzantine ally. So, worst of both worlds for Bulgaria, right? They've got to pay tribute to these faraway Tatars and get attacked by these close-by Tatars. Honestly, it just sucks, but yeah, that's how geopolitics works. So, this guy, Nogai, he's off-raiding, and when he's done, he decides to establish a new capital for himself, just on the northern tip of the Danube Delta, frighteningly close to Constantine. Now, this meant that the Tatar threat was even more pronounced and immediate, because from this base, Nogai could easily begin raids deep into Bulgarian territory. He was right on the border. 
As I mentioned in the last episode, Constantine was already paralyzed from the waist down owing to that accident. And so, yeah, in the, in the kind of the context of all this chaos and these renewed Tatar raids, his Byzantine wife, Maria, begins to take over more and more of his responsibilities. But in any case, this all meant that central authority was incredibly weak. When the Tsar and Turnival failed to protect people from Tatar raids, unsurprisingly, the respectability of the central government falls even further. Then, it becomes harder to get taxes and soldiers from local regions around Bulgaria, in particular because there are fewer, there's fewer things to tax because the economy is paralyzed because of these annual raids, and people are very unwilling to go fight for the central government. They want to stay home and protect their farms from these raiders. So... It just sort of paralyzes the whole state. It harms central authority. The, the negative consequences of this just sort of reverberate throughout the government. So in 1273, maybe 1272, sources differ. There actually is a bit of good news, though. The sudden death of King Stephen V of Hungary brings his 10-year-old son, Ladislas IV, to the throne. Now, this marked a political shift, wherein the Hungarian crown decided that it was going to kind of shift its overall strategy. It was going to try to replace local rulers with local ties with royally appointed ones. Now, obviously, this was an attempt to stop the kind of political fragmentation we've been seeing a lot in Bulgaria. But it was also really risky because holding the possibility of provoking backlash and ending up with provinces ruled by men who while loyal to you, were not well-connected and able to govern and keep control, well, that was a big danger. And in another time, with a stronger king than Ladislas, this strategy may have worked, but the boy and his regents couldn't provide enough support to those appointed governors to keep the system going. The resulting weakness in the Hungarian government as it tried to kind of further control over its peripheral states and, and really lock down a strong central authority with a weak central uh, king at, at the head of all of it resulted in, first, two Bulgarian kuman, kind of a mixture of the two, boyars, named Darman and Kadalin, establishing a small independent state for themselves on the Danube north of Vidin. So remember these northern Danubian uh, states and cities that we've been discussing forever that the Hungarians and Bulgarians have been fighting over? Well, these guys kind of rise up and take over a section of that around the end of the 1270s. In response to being physically cut off from a much weaker Hungary, meaning Hungary kind of lost its main base from which it could attack, uh, launch attacks into Vidin and Bulgaria, Jacob Svetoslav ultimately decided to switch his loyalties back to Tornovol from Budapest, which doesn't exist right now, but, you know, Pest. So this is actually a big deal for Bulgaria because not only did Bulgaria regain Vidin and the important soldiers and taxes that came with it, but Hungary's ability to project power onto Bulgarian territory was severely weakened. But remember, this is always going to be a double-edged sword because Bulgaria didn't have any fixed alliances in this period. As you'll remember, one day it's allied with the Byzantines, another day with the Hungarians. And as a result, losing Hungary as a potential enemy, as a state which can project power into the Balkans, also kind of meant losing it as a potential ally should things go badly against the Byzantines. So in any case, it's kind of good news, but in general it also means the stakes are being raised 
in the Balkans. It means Bulgaria's relationship with the Byzantines becomes even more important. Because, again, Constantine is still paralyzed. With this in mind, he decides to crown his new infant son, Michael, as co-emperor in 1273. Problem is, Michael's about three years old, so he's hardly adding stability to the throne. It's more of a symbolic gesture. Now, remember a minute ago, I mentioned Constantine's wife uh, and father to Michael, Maria, taking over many responsibilities? Well, prepare yourself for a shock here, because, turns out, the boyars are not super thrilled about being quasi-ruled by a woman, and a Byzantine woman, no less. As the boyars got more and more hostile towards her, uh, resenting her kind of governing with the uh, emperor unable to do it himself, she steadily built up factions and played one off against each other. She occasionally executed her enemies when she thought it was necessary, and... As a result, opposition to Maria slowly built up amongst these ruling classes. To make matters worse, Tatar raids were still causing continued chaos in the country, and further showing the weakness of the Tsar via his inability to stop them. And it would be 15 years before Constantine's successor, Michael, was even an adult, at least by our measure of adulthood at 18, but you get the idea. You know, so the situation is dire for the House of Asin, right? Okay, they may have lost Hungary as a potential enemy, but these raids are still crippling the country. They can't exercise central control. The, the Tsar is not going to get unparalyzed anytime soon. The Tsarina ruling in, in, his, uh, in his place is tremendously unpopular, and his son is a very, very, very long way from, becoming from kind of being able to rule. So... As you can imagine, it seems pretty unlikely that the status quo is going to be able to continue long enough for the little Michael to take the throne. So, understandably, maybe, Maria becomes increasingly paranoid about rebellions and uh, factions and assassinations and intrigues and all this. Maybe it's her Byzantine upbringing, but no, it seems pretty justified. One likely figure was none other than Jacob Svetoslav. You know, when she's looking around and saying, who could overthrow us? You know, who might be an enemy? She looks at Jacob and she sees a strong leader, someone who is well-liked, someone who is married into the Asin family and therefore has you know, some modicum of legitimacy. Because you remember, in the last century, we've seen several tsars uh, rise to, to take the throne when they had just married into the royal family. So clearly that there's precedence for that. So to handle this threat, Maria works at a deal. And Jacob is brought to Tornovo and adopted by her as a second son. Now, what this meant was that Jacob was now second in line for the throne after the young Michael. Jacob also, in doing this, promised not to overthrow Michael, potentially eliminating one of the most dangerous potential sources for a coup for the royal family. At least you'd think so. But by all accounts, Maria just never fully trusted Jacob and continued to keep a close eye on him, jealously guarding her and her son's positions in court. As a result, she eventually decided, eh, this isn't working out for me, and Jacob was poisoned around 1275, most likely resulting in Bulgaria fully annexing his lands, though there's kind of a few conflicting sources about whether or not Bulgaria controlled Vidin right after this. It's possible that Vidin sort of ran its own, yeah, ran itself for a little while, but in any case, Jacob Svetoslav is dead. So, 
okay, great. The most powerful alternative source of power is gone. But the danger is still just beginning. Because by 1277, many Bulgarians, particularly the population of Dobruja, which was closest to and thereby most affected by those brutal annual raids by the Tatars, well, those populations of people in those lands had had enough. And so, at this moment, we see the entrance of a man named Ivailo. Or, you could call him Ivailo, or one of his many, many nicknames, which I just can't not mention because they're great. He was occasionally called radish, lettuce, kale, or just vegetable. Okay, silly nicknames aside, and I am just going to call him Ivailo, as tempting as it is to refer to him as, I don't know, radish throughout the story. Who was he? Well, he was a swineherd, meaning he took care of pigs for a living. Now, that might not sound like much, but in this period and for centuries afterwards, owning livestock like that was one of the few ways a kind of everyday peasant and everyday person could accumulate significant wealth. An example of this that actually came straight to my mind because of my studies of Balkan history, as well as to the mind of uh, historian John Fine, uh, I like that we both immediately thought of the same example, was Kara George. He was the leader of the first Serbian uprising against the Ottomans in the beginning of the 19th century, and of course, uh, a pig farmer. Point is, uh, never underestimate a Balkan pig farmer. And those of you who've seen the movie Snatch should have already learned that vital lesson that you can never trust a man who keeps pigs. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go see the movie Stat- Snatch. It's a, it's a good movie. But anyways, back to Evilo. Now, as it should be clear, the central government in Turnival is not doing much to protect everyday people from Tatar raids. So those people gradually begin to take measures themselves. And Ivailo was evidently a particularly successful leader of local militia against the Tatars. Combine this with his claims that his success was guided by a connection to God, his religious and military appeal came together to make him immensely popular in his native Dobruja. Seeing his success and his popularity, provincial boyars also flocked to Ivailo. As a result, by 1277, the contrast between Ivailo's tremendous success and, and the unpopularity and impotence of Maria and Constantine in Turnival was unmistakable. Everyone could see it. So, seeing this moment, Ivailo decided to proclaim himself Tsar in the spring of that year, 1277. And he began his uprising. Within months, he'd won several victories against the Tatars, driving them out of Bulgaria during their raiding season. It took until late 1277, but Constantine finally managed to gather an army and go out to meet the usurper, traveling in a chariot owing to his paralysis. When the two met in battle, the Tsar's army was crushed, and many of his forces defected to Ivailo. Constantine himself is said to have been killed by Ivailo personally. The man had ruled Bulgaria for a full 20 years. A reign which should have brought much-needed stability, but which only brought more weakness and more divisions. It seems few mourned his passing. Now, throughout the fall and winter leading up to that spring of 1278, Ivailo moved through the country, taking fortress by fortress, until only Turnival remained, with Maria holed up, acting as a regent for the infant Tsar Michael. But these developments hadn't gone unnoticed. 
The Byzantines in particular were busy bolstering their defenses, preparing for trouble. Ah, but weren't the Byzantines intervening right away to save Maria? I mean, she was a Byzantine princess. She's the niece of the emperor in Constantinople. He's her uncle. Ah, but never underestimate the complexities of Byzantine politics. Because, in fact, Emperor Michael hated his niece in Turnival. He hated her for her opposition to several of his key policies as emperor. She, in return, considered her uncle to be a heretic. And, yeah, hated him just as much. So, contrary to what you might think, he wasn't about to run off and help her. But he was determined to take advantage of this situation. You know, the Byzantine Empire can't afford to sort of let things happen around them. They've got to get involved because their position's always a bit precarious as well. So Emperor Michael, the one in Constantinople, had the idea to place a Byzantine candidate on the throne. But who would it be? Well, let's go back a little. Now, remember that man, Mitso Asen, who had briefly been Tsar for just a few months, about two decades before this. Well, remember he accepted Byzantine asylum and settled in Anatolia? Well, there he had a son, a boy he named Ivanasen III. Unsurprising, I mean, he was the grandson of Ivanasen II, through his mother's line. So remember, Mitso was another one of those people who became Tsar by marrying into the Asen dynasty. So, yeah, who better to rule in Turnival than yet another Ivanasen? So the 17-year-old boy was quickly married to the Byzantine Emperor Michael's daughter, made to swear an oath of loyalty to Constantinople, and proclaimed Tsar of Bulgaria in his own right. And so now here we are, two decades later, once again with three different men, each claiming the title Tsar of Bulgaria. It's deja vu all over again, all over again. Now, the boyars throughout Bulgaria have a choice. Support the legitimate child emperor in Turnival and risk being forced to wait another 15 years or so before the boy can rule in his own right? Certainly a dangerous proposition. Or support Ivilo and put a pig farmer on the throne. Now, he may be tremendously successful, but nobody like him has ever ruled for before. And from the perspective of a boyar, this could be a very dangerous precedent, right? The Roman Empire saw this kind of issue. If, if you make it, if you kind of set the precedent that anyone can become emperor as long as they're strong enough, you tend to encourage a lot of people to get strong enough. Or their third option, support a legitimate member of the Asen dynasty and put Bulgaria under the thumb of Byzantium. Really, neither of them seem like very good options, none of them. And to make it worse, the boyars had very little time to decide, because by mid-1278, Ivilo was laying siege to Tornival. Ivanasen III was entering Bulgaria at the head of a Byzantine army, with a Tatar army entering from the north to support them. Now, honestly, I kind of wish I could end the episode here, just because, I mean, what a cliffhanger. But we're less than 20 minutes in, so I'll resist the urge. Uh, you guys deserve more than a 20-minute episode. So... The situation is heating up, and Maria can see that she is pretty well out of options, because there's very little reason for anyone to support her as such a disliked figure and her son Michael, who maybe nobody dislikes, but he's still like almost four now. What's he going to do? So she decides to throw open the gates to the capital to Ivilo and his soldiers. She marries Ivilo, 
allowing her to continue in her role, with him becoming the new Tsar, baby Michael staying on as heir to the throne, and for the first time ever, a commoner becoming Tsar of Bulgaria. Sure, I mean, boyars had risen to the position a number of times, but really, up to this point, nobody like Ivailo has ever ruled Bulgaria. And it really is a remarkable rise from swineherd to Tsar in about a year. Now, historians have often raised the question of the nature of Ivailo's uprising. For example, uh, Fine points out that many Marxist historians of the 20th century tried to portray it as a fundamentally social movement, a kind of revolutionary movement. But, well, Fine explains why that's kind of a bit discredited now. Essentially, if Ivailo's uprising was intended to be some kind of a social revolution, well, he wouldn't have enjoyed the support of the, support of the boyars, and he certainly wouldn't have married Maria and kind of uh, shoehorned himself straight into the traditional uh, court structure of Turnival. So con- contrary to what a bunch of kind of revision- revisionists during the communist period in Bulgarian history had to say, this uprising should really be seen as one against a weak Tsar. Remember, Ivailo and all those people propelling him were the victims of constant raiding from the Tatars. These were people desperate for a central government that could protect them. And achieving that didn't require upending the social system. It required getting a strong Tsar on the throne. Still, now on the throne in Turnival, Ivailo hardly had a moment to celebrate his victory. Because in the meantime, the Byzantines had been sending lavish gifts to boyars around the country, urging them to support Ivanasen III. Then, there were their Tatar allies making trouble as well. In Turnival, Ivailo wasn't making any friends himself. It shouldn't come to a surprise that he was not terribly well suited for the ins and outs of court life. He fought with his wife and ended up frustrating both the established boyars of Turnival and his supporters back home. But who knows, maybe a few victories on the battlefield could fix that. So in the summer of 1278, Ivailo left the safety of Turnival to combat the Tatars. In short order, he defeated them yet again, pushing them out of Bulgarian territory. But while he was fighting and beating the Tatars for many years, that's how he built his fame, remember, he had still never faced a Byzantine army. And that is now what he was called to do. Luckily for him, while he was north dealing with the Tatars, the Byzantines had been broadly held back by strong fortresses in and around the Balkan mountains. But still, the Byzantines were making progress. It may be slow and bloody progress, but they were taking fortresses. They were advancing. Following his victory in the north, Ivailo now moved south and won several victories against the Byzantines. However, by early fall, a Byzantine army with Ivanasen III in their number still began a siege of Turnival with Ivailo inside the walls of the city. And this time, at this time rather, yet another Tatar army also invades from the north. And so, what's Ivailo to do? He decides to sneak out of the city, raises another army, and goes off to fight the Tatars yet again. Eventually, the Tatars manage to besiege him in Drastar, which is now Silistra, an important fortress city on the Danube. You can see a map on the website, bghistorypodcast.com, where you can follow all of this. By early 1249, the Byzantines had landed another army on the shores of the Black Sea and were moving in for the kill, 
while the army besieging Ternoval were negotiating to end the war. It seems like it's pretty much over. The boyars are clearly deciding where their loyalties lay. And so they begin to spread the rumor that in fact Ivilo is dead, helping to make continued resistance feel pointless. And so, believing this, that Ivilo was indeed dead, they threw open the gates of the city to the Byzantines and Ivanasen III, who was quickly proclaimed emperor. Maria, now pregnant with Ivilo's child, was just as quickly thrown into prison in Adrianople along with the young Michael. To further solidify his position amongst the boyars, Ivanasen III married his sister to one of the most powerful among them, a man by the name of George Tertur. Ah, but let's not forget, as easy as it is, Ivalo was still very much alive and well. He's just holed up in Drastar on the Danube fighting the siege. When he heard news of the loss of Turnival, he broke out of the siege, gathered his forces, and went off to lay siege to Turnival himself. Two Byzantine armies came to relieve Ivanasen III, but Ivalo defeated them both in turn. First, a 10,000-strong force was wiped out near the Kotel Pass at the Battle of Devnya. Then, a force half that size shortly afterwards in the Srednagora Mountains. Now by this time, unsurprisingly, Ivailo had a truly fearsome reputation. He was said to take no prisoners, and was greatly feared by his enemies. Understandably, because thus far, he had never lost a battle. Well now, Ivanasen III still reigned in Turnival, but there were no more Byzantine or Tatar armies between him and that fearsome man, Ivailo. Fearing for his life, the Tsar fled to the Black Sea, boarded a ship for Constantinople, and fled. He had sat on the throne for less than a year. When he arrived in the Byzantine capital, bearing a Byzantine insignia which Bulgaria had captured at the Battle of Triavna 90 years earlier, Emperor Michael refused to see him, considering Ivanasen III a coward for having abandoned Turnival so easily. Not surprising, considering the very, very considerable resources Michael had expended to put him on that throne, that he had left it without even putting up a fight, without even trying to withstand a siege, was unforgivable to the emperor. So, what now? I guess Ivalo's victorious, right? Well, no. Because the nobles, who are the only ones left in Turnival, well, they still ran the show. And they were not exactly eager to let the guy they just betrayed, Ivalo, back inside to rule over them. No, that doesn't sound good to them at all. So instead, they decide to elect one of their own to become the new Tsar. And who better than the aforementioned George Tertar? A man who had just married Ivanasen III's sister. And so, I like this, it's very ironic. In his attempt to use that marriage to secure loyalty from the boyars, Ivanasen III actually positioned one of them to succeed him by marrying that guy into the royal family. How's that for irony? And so, what was Ivalo supposed to do? His attempts to overthrow a weak Tsar and protect his people from the Tatars had led to yet another disastrous three-way civil war. The boyars in Tornovo were arrayed against him with their own Tsar, and the Byzantines and the Tatars, well, they may be down for now, but they were far from defeated. And this all followed gradually, and it followed were, I don't know, what followed here was that his supporters were gradually becoming sick of the endless war. They were becoming disillusioned with his cause. This had been dragging on for years. And 
remember, they were not kind of inspired by revolutionary zeal or something. They wanted peace. They wanted stability. And that is not what they were getting from Evilo. And so next time, we're going to see how the situation resolves itself. Will George Turter manage to regain the throne that he just took out of all expectations? Will Ivanison III return at the head of yet another Byzantine army and retake it himself? Will Ivailo regain the love and devotion of the great mass of the Bulgarian population and return himself to his own unlikely rule over Turnival? Or will the chaotic wheels of Bulgarian history continue to turn and turn and throw some other scenario into the works? You'll have to tune in next time to find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, with some research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music, as always, was written and performed by the eminently talented Teddy Raven. He's also got a new album coming out. Uh, So, yeah, Google him, Teddy Raven, easy to find. Check out the album. He's a really good jazz musician. So if you're into that sort of thing, take a look. As always, like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes. Um, Check out the Bulgarian Now podcast. And yeah, get in touch. Uh, any suggestions for the website? Want to help turn, making a Bulgarian version of the podcast? Anything like that, just get in touch. So until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.